all, welcome to Detoxicity, a podcast about manhood. And no, I'm not talking about genitalia. Whether this is your first time checking this podcast out or you're a regular listener, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy. Detoxicity is available on just about every podcast platform there is, and I hope that however you listen, you take a minute to subscribe and drop a rating and or a comment. If you feel the need to check me out on social media, you can go to facebook.com slash detoxpod, or you can follow me on Instagram at itsmikejoseph and on Twitter at tismikejoseph. There's also a detoxpod newsletter. You can find the link to sign up for it at tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. What's more, you can even email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. Feel free to drop a line if you want, make suggestions, provide constructive criticism, and also don't hesitate to reach out should you want to be on the podcast or you know somebody who'd be a good fit. My guest on this episode, episode 26, is Brian Carter, who is a multi-instrumentalist, jazz musician, and educator originally from Illinois, now based in New York City. In this episode, Brian shares his life experience with us, which includes growing up in a Baptist church with a, with a family of well-known religious educators and leaders. He also grew up with a keen interest in music, which led him to Juilliard and to eventually pursue a career full-time as a musician. Brian and I also discuss experiences growing up proud and black in a majority white community. You might cringe when Brian discusses Slave Day. We talk about the experience with police brutality that informed the creation of his latest single, and we talk about coming to terms with queerness as an adult, and the positive and negative consequences that he's faced for being out and educating others. It is my extreme pleasure to introduce Brian Carter. My name is Brian Carter, and I am a musician in New York City, primarily in the realm of jazz. I'm a drummer, a vocalist, composer, band leader, orchestrator, kind of all the things that you you have to be to survive as a musician in 2020. Yeah, aside from that, I, I work a lot with, with young people, uh, in education, I, I do a lot with LGBTQ youth and, and yeah, just trying to pay it all forward. <laughs> Hi. So you are, if I remember correctly, from the Midwest, right? From the Midwest, yeah. I'm from a small town called Sycamore, Illinois. I promise you've never heard of it. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I definitely have not. <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, a college town, DeKalb, Illinois. My dad taught at the university there. Northern Illinois University, and he was the director of jazz studies out there. So it's about an hour outside of Chicago. But yeah, tiny little town. Cool. So is it fair to say that your dad doing what he did is what got you interested in having a career in music? Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. You know, I have three older brothers and none of them really took music super seriously. Like, you know, some played instruments and whatnot, but no one like treated it super seriously. Then I came along and I was like, music, 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 music. <laughs> yeah, my dad had kind of given up by that point And he was like, oh, I guess this one will like music. <laughs> <laughs> was it just like in your DNA? Like, was it just like from some people, a lot of people actually, uh, myself included, even though I'm not a musician, I'm a big fan of music. Like I just had like this one track mind. Was it were you like steered in a direction or was it just like you came out and you were like, I'm taking this seriously and I love music and I want to be a part of music regardless of what shape it takes. I mean, I don't, I think it's a little bit of both, you know, I don't, I don't fully buy into my parents are always like, yeah, he just like did it all himself. But like, there's photos of me, like one and a half, two years old sitting at drums and like sitting at pianos and stuff. And I'm like, someone had to put me there. Like I didn't just, I Jump just, onto a drum set. I didn't magically get there. Like someone had to be like, 
right here and then take the photo. So no, but I, I always gravita- gravitated towards music and that's what I, I knew I wanted to do when I was like five. I told my parents I was going to Juilliard and I was going to move to New York and be a musician. And they were like, all right, you got to get through preschool first. <laughs> <laughs> but you made that happen. Like that is, that was the narrative. That's, that's how things kind of went. Right. Well, we made that happen. You know, it yeah. takes, it takes a, uh, it takes a village to raise right. a child. <laughs> right. Right. One thing that I'm curious and uh, a lot of the, ja- I've asked a lot of the, musicians who are sort of on the younger side, like, you know, 20s and early 30s, you know, we grew up, well, y'all grew up, because I'm a little older than, than than you folks, in an era when playing instruments and things like jazz and piano playing and, you know, all that kind of music wasn't really, like, at the center of popular culture. Right. So how did, how was it for you, like, growing up and Presumably, everybody's listening to hip hop or, or you know indie rock or punk or whatever it is, and you're playing the drums and you're invested in jazz, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in this this really weird way where it's like I I grew up in an extremely eclectic household, so you know I I grew up I I, I guess in a household where you know I was. One, my dad was the director of a you know a jazz program, so I was always constantly surrounded by jazz. And not only that, but like twice a year, he would have people like Benny Golson and and Ed Thigpen and kind of like these jazz legends come in, and I would you know have dinner with them every night, and they would come over. You know, Dizzy Gillespie would come over to our house, and when I was a little boy, I'd sit in his lap and you know poke his cheek and just <laughs> stuff like that, you know. So there was that side of it, and then you know I, we were a family that you know we were in church four days, five days a week sometimes, you know? So I was involved in all the gospel music, you know, if you, if you aren't familiar with being a young musician in, in the black church, it's kind of like, what instrument do you play? Whatever they tell me to, when do you play? Whenever they tell me to, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's like, all right, you play piano, you're going to go sing in the choir. You're going to go conduct the youth choir today. You know, that was kind of like the, the thing. And then aside from that, I, you know, I, I was, started playing violin and taking Suzuki violin lessons when I was three. So like my, you know, we would go to, to or, or orchestra performances. Like my parents would take me to hear Chicago symphony or St. Louis symphony. And people would be like, one, they'd be like, he's too young to come in. And my parents were like, it's fine. And then I was the only three year old at the symphony for sure. Right. You know, and like sit there and, and kind of like watch the whole thing really quietly and wait, you know, for the right time to clap and <laughs> look at people and be like, you're not this little boy. You're What's a kid. It? Yeah. And my, they'd be like, how did you get him to sit through that? You know, quietly. I could never get my son to sit through a 45 minute symphony. My parents are like, he likes it. He wants to. So, and then, you know, I have older brothers. So, you know, whatever the pop music was when I was a really little boy, like, you know, '90s hip hop and R&B and 2000s Britney Spears and NSYNC or whatever it was right. Like I, I to this day, people still make fun of me because I love like '90s pop. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I'm like, come on, it had a vibe. Yes. Uh, so yes. No shame. I grew up loving all of it. That's awesome. So you mentioned the church, and what what denomination was it? Missionary Baptist. 
Okay. So that's church. <laughs> so that's probably and and this is my lack of lack of knowledge of of some denominations coming in. I assume that's one of those like holler kind of like it's not a very sedate service. Like it's it's a little bit more spirited than like a Catholic church or something like that. I would say it's a lot more spirited. Because <laughs> <laughs> I went, you know, I grew up Catholic and I went with my mom and my stepdad a couple of times. It, it might have been like a Southern Baptist church or something like that. And there were people passing out and there was like, yes, Lord. And yes, Jesus. And yes, Reverend. And that kind of stuff. So is my assumption that it was more of that kind of church, correct? It was definitely more of that kind of church. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How did that I mean, I guess if that's what you grew up in, then that sort of thing was normal to you. Yeah. I mean, that it didn't seem that out of the ordinary, you know, at the time. I remember being a little older and like we'd bring like, I would go to, you know, one of my white friends churches or like they would come to our church and I'd be like, wow, this is way different. One, (laughs) your service is only an hour long and mine is five hours long for some reason. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. There aren't multiple praise breaks and the music is terrible. What's going on over here? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I, I, I guess um, flipping it a little bit, as you were maybe starting to realize that you were part of the LGBTQ community, like how did that environment, how did those two environments like intersect? Ooh, well, they didn't. I think that was, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's a huge uh, stigma with, especially, you know, during this time with being gay and being in the church, the two don't go together. There's a, a cognitive dissonance that exists in that world, at least at that time. I mean, I'm sure it still does. Yeah, it's, I'm positive it still exists. In many, many places. I mean, I know yeah. for a fact that it does. Yeah. Um, so don't come for me, people who are like, it's different now. It's not. Uh, I mean, I would imagine incrementally different, but not different enough that, you know, yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was a childhood of, you know, hiding who you are and and praying and hoping and, you know, uh, putting you in a, in a very unhealthy place. I think for all the positive things that growing up in church did for me in terms of, just, you know, music and, and community and, and, you know, to a certain, certain degree, it's like, you know, teaching you right from wrong. You know, there's a lot of harm that it did as well, you know, and that's, that's serious to say, you know, my grandfather's a pastor, my dad's a deacon, my mom's a youth pastor. It's like a whole, I come from a, a, a church, I come from a family of preachers and musicians, I always say. And, you know, my mom's like writing a book on Christian education right now. So, you know, it's like, while it can do so much good and it can be such a a powerful place, especially for the African-American community, it's like, man, it it can do a lot of damage as well. It can be a really dangerous and insidious place. Uh, Yeah, I get that. So... When, I mean, when did you kind of, so here's, here's, here's a, a thought. I can't really think of a time when I like discovered that I wasn't straight. Right. 
but some people can kind of pinpoint it. Are you one of those people that can pinpoint it or were you just kind of like an, I always knew kind of person? No, I mean, I guess it kind of gradually came in waves. Like I always joke around. I'm like, I remember the first time I saw Titanic and everyone was like, wow. I can't even think of her name right now. Kate, was it Kate, Kate, Kate Winslet? Winslet? Okay. Phew. So hot. I love her. And I was like, you know, this other guy, he's doing really <laughs> good. He's a really good actor. No, um, no, I think it, it definitely came in waves. And by the time I was like 13, like in end of seventh grade, really more so eighth grade. I think that that really clicked for me that I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I understand the uh Oh feeling. Like, what did, what did I do wrong? I did something wrong here. <laughs> right. Right. What is that like as a teenager kind of, I mean, puberty is bad enough, man. And it's like going through that and going through, you know, issues with your sexuality and going through like wanting to become a musician and kind of going through all of that, like the convergence of all of these things, like your teenage years, I mean, there must've just been a lot going on. Man. Yeah. I think identity was, was huge for me. You know, I, my parents are, are products and their children of the civil rights movement. And my, my grandparents are, civil rights leaders to this day. My grandfather's no longer with us on both sides, but the, you know, the heroes and pillars in, in their communities. So there was always a strong sense of, of, of blackness in my, in my family. And, and even as like a young man, like I'm eight years old and I'm, I'm reading uh, black like me and I'm, I'm 12 and I'm, you know, my parents give me my first James Baldwin book. And you know, it's like, I had this example of, of strong black men and, and what that looked like. And then I was in many ways being in Sycamore, Illinois, it's like a very white conservative, you know, so I already, before I even started dealing with sexuality, it was like around 11, 12, you know, I, I'd be at school in my like conservative Christian middle school and I'd have teachers praising Ronald Reagan and, you know, and saying that, you know, liberals are, are being led by the devil and, and Malcolm X was, was a terrorist and like just crazy stuff that I was. Whoa, hearing. this is, this is a private school. Oh, this is. Yeah. I mean, but okay. This, I was about to say, <laughs> but this is also like, I mean, it's not that far, I believe from what was going on in public school. Right. I'll get to that in a minute, but it's like, you know, my, my middle school had a day called slave day. It, it, okay. And I'm, what happened during that day? I'll make this up. I was glad a day where it was a fundraiser for, I believe it was for the seniors. So the juniors would raise for the sophomores. They would basically have a slave auction during the weekend and they put like dirt on their face and like rip their clothes and they would, you know, take those little paper cuffs and you would like make chains out of it and they'd be on chains and they would have an auction and you would auction people off and then like whoever you know like if you were popular in school you would go for more than just like a normal you know and you would buy them and they would have to be your slave for the next week and it that was slave slave day it was like a, a thing wow and they could not understand like why me and the other the other black students were were super upset by that 
<laughs> you know, you know. Brian I, thinks everyone is racist, and I'm like, well, when you do stuff like this, yeah, I mean, that's kind of uh, what? Yeah, exactly. What are you supposed to believe? My so there, there was like that that whole part of the identity that kind of happened first, where where you know, and I think it's it's popular with a lot of black men. You know, you you go from being this adorable kid who's like in gifted classes and who's, you know, super well-spoken and, you know, would rather, honestly would rather hang out with adults than hang out with, you know, kids their own age. So everyone's like, Oh, he's so cute. That's adorable. And he, you know, even when you do something you probably shouldn't be doing, it's like, right. Still well, cute. He's like a little adult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The way that he's arguing with this teacher, like that's adorable. You know, you go from that to starting puberty and you're getting taller and your voice is getting deeper and all of a sudden you're threatening. And I think that's really all the stuff that my parents were talking to me about growing up that I, I wasn't really able to grasp. It's like, that's when that kicked in. So I was already kind of looked at, at a lot of, by a lot of people as not even defiant, but just like strong willed where it was like, what you're saying is, is not gospel for me. Right. That's related to, to your identity and, your privilege and what you're, you know, I was, we, we talk about privilege, like, you know, 12 year old Brian Carter, like <laughs> I'm sure my friend Siobhan will watch this and be like, Oh God, <laughs> like, wow. some of the arguments I had in, in middle school and high school, you know, is a product of who my, my grandparents are. Um, but that's, that's a really interesting take because a lot of people don't understand how a white kid or, you know, a younger you know, someone who is deemed as cute or non-threatening, whatever, like a little kid can say certain things and get away with them. But if you put a, a teenage or older black person, those words, those same words are going to be interpreted very differently. Exactly. Yeah. I, I became threatening. And so everything kind of shifted, you know, there. So there's dealing with that. And then there's dealing, you know, with just normal teenage puberty angst. Right. Which is not a picnic, in, just in general. No, and then you have like the whole sexuality thing, and especially the way that I dealt with it, because I, it turned very quickly into like you know self-deprecation, self-hatred. You know, it was like sure. I hate thing about me. It makes me very angry. So I, I think in a lot of ways, music was a refuge for me. You know, being able to escape escape to that. And not only that, but especially as when I got a little bit older, being able to be known, you know, for that as like, Oh, Brian's the musician, you know, and not even having to deal with some of the other aspects of my identity. Right. Known as Brian's the music kid. So you're going through puberty, you're, you're graduating high school and you had always pinpointed Juilliard as the place you wanted to go. And then you ended up going. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I didn't even really realize what that was. We were watching Oprah or something when I was a kid and like, you know, it was like they had some, some kid on who was super talented and she thought that she was going to Juilliard and the audience went, Whoa. And you know, Oprah was like, Oh my God. You know? <laughs> I was like, Dad, what's Juilliard? And he was like, Oh, that's where the, the best, music students in the world go. And I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to go. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and it was like 
for some reason, it was just something that I always said when I was a little kid, you know, and then randomly it ended up happening. <laughs> what was it like jumping from your small town into New York City? I mean, I, I always came and, and I was visited New York when my dad would, would come here to work and you know, teach and play and stuff. So I was familiar somewhat with the city, like I'd been here before. And, you know, I, I worked in Chicago every every day growing up, you know. So I, it, it was definitely a culture shock, but I, I was very ready for it. <laughs> like, I bet. I was like, get me out of this town. Get me out of Sycamore. Yeah. You know, I, so many people leave their towns or their cities or whatever and move to New York just because it'll, New York allows everybody to be free, essentially, to be individual. Like, you're not, there's nothing, if you, like, and I've lived in New York for 80% of my life. There's nothing that can shock anybody that lives in New York City. Right. You know, it's it, so that's kind of the place where everybody goes to get a taste of, okay, I can be myself and, you know, no one's going to look at me sideways or anything like that. Was that part of the reason that you? Uh, no, I think I came here. I was super excited to be around people who were serious about music. I was super excited to to not be around my super strict parents, <laughs> you know, I was excited to like get here and, and get away from a, a to be free in a sense, but still when I got here, I was like extremely plagued by my own identity and you know I coming to Juilliard in a place that it's kind of like you have to dress this way and you have to speak this way and you know it's still very much kind of like prison, especially the jazz program mm-hmm. during that time. you know we used to call it jail yard <laughs> <laughs> oh crap. What are, what are the expectations? You know, I, I can't speak for what it is now. It's it's weird because, you know, you have like the dance division and like, you know, everyone is, is completely living their most authentic lives. They're being their most authentic selves. And then you have, you know, right across the hall, the jazz division. And it's just like so repressed and, you know, it's kind of like one image of, of what you had to be. And I mean, even within the jazz community, you know, at this time, as far as jazz schools go, like Juilliard was thought of as kind of like the most conservative, traditional, you know, education in, in music, specifically jazz studies that you could get, you know. <clears throat> and I think in a lot of ways they were trying to break that musically. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it was was fine. It it was very much about like making sure that your business is in order and making sure that, you know, you're always well prepared and you dress a certain way and you carry yourself a certain way. But, you know, with that comes, you know, as we talk about masculinity, just like, what is your suit and how much of a man are you, you know, it's, it can become like very macho and, and, and very toxic really quickly if you're not careful. So, I mean, that was, that was a lot of my experience. Like there was a lot of, yeah, I, I feel weird even telling the story. I, I remember like getting to to Juilliard like in the first week, you know, moving to New York, you know, speaking to one of one of the teachers at Juilliard, and he was like, 
you know, I, I don't think I was really out to my, I knew I was gay, but I wasn't really out to myself. Like I was like, this is just something that I'll work through and I'll figure it out, you know? And he was like, you know, coming here, you're going to have, there's a, there's a big cultural difference here. There's a lot of, a lot of weird things here that you're gonna have to get used to. And I was like, what do you mean? Like the city, like how big, like, what do you mean? Right. Homeless people on the street. He was like, Oh no, specifically at school. I mean, you'll, you'll see, just, just wait until you see the dance division. You'll, you'll see, you know? So it was like, even that sort of kind of explicit homophobia that is right at school. That's crazy to me. Um, not crazy to me, but I think of the people that I knew that went to Juilliard, and I guess a lot of them were dance students. So I always got the impression of that school as a place that didn't really have any kind of hangups regarding the sexuality of others. But, you know, the worlds of dance and classical music are much different than the world of jazz is. The classical division, like I remember being in rooms, you know, in the dorm, just like blatant homophobic conversations about people you know all right kind of said and it's just like oh yeah okay it's not that much <laughs> it's not, not that much different you know and so, it, it was funny it's like i remember it changing like especially being an ra like you know my sophomore year is when you know the student at rutgers he committed suicide because you know that was like a huge thing because you know he was a musician he was a violinist tons of the incoming freshmen knew him like personally they'd done oh wow you know and so when kind of like it became this national story and it gets it gets better campaign began that was like a a huge thing especially at juilliard because you know people had personal relationships with that student and I, i remember the climate sort of changing then but even then it became more of like an unspoken like you don't talk about this thing specifically sure sure so just in terms of masculinity and the things that we as black people often learn about what it takes, what being a man necessitates. And then, you know, learning about or experience, you know, having your own experience with your sexuality growing up, like what, like what were the positives and negatives about the masculine imagery that you encountered you know, as you were growing up and into young adulthood. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's actually powerful about the way that I kind of learned about masculinity and what it is, is it was always kind of framed for me in a way that was like defy, defy the expectation that's placed upon you. So that was the way that it was kind of framed to me by like my dad and my grandfather and my, my uncles and, you know, <clears throat> this, this concept of just like, people don't expect anything from you as a black man. Like they expect you to be the worst student. They don't expect you to be able to, to communicate with them on their level. Like they, you know, that was like the whole thing. And it was like, you have to defy all these things. You have to work 10 times harder, you know, and I've come along like, and not only just from, from, you know, white people, like, you know, I've black people have been like, why are you the teacher's pet? And you, you talk like a white boy, you know, oh, yeah. oh yeah, all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I would come home upset and my dad would sit down and be like, listen to this speech by so-and-so. 
Does he speak like he did more? For, you know, like read Frederick Douglass. <laughs> this is, you know, just that sort of education in, in defying, defying, ex, defying the barriers that are kind of being placed uh, in front of you and, and kind of moving past whatever limitations people have in their minds about you. So, I mean, from the get-go, even though this was unintentional on their part, they kind of, <laughs> they kind of gave me the tip, the template for how to ignore like some of these like more toxic aspects of, of masculinity that are, that are placed upon us even now. Oh yeah. You know, it, it's always interesting to me, or it's become a lot more interesting to me in the last five, 10 years, how people seem to have become more accepting of different types of blackness. Right. Like that, that measuring stick still exists, but not as strongly both internally within the community and externally as it used to. Like, you know, there is room for different expressions. You know, Jaden Smith can wear a, a, a skirt or a dress and wear makeup. You know, you can have you can have a Barack Obama. You can have a little Wayne. You can have, you know, all of these different, you know, different black experiences that are all valid. I mean, I think that's taken such a long time to even get to a point where it's sort of semi accepted. Right. You know, I think it's something that we still struggle with. You know, it's like every time you know, a white person feels the need to send me like a Candace Owens video. It's like, I don't think that you are the same as this person. And you would right. It's like, why must the black experience be monolithic for you? Like, can you explain that to me? And they never really have a, a retort or a reason. I'm like, it's your own internal racism. Yeah. Won't allow for you to allow a black person to, to be more than just, what you think, what caricature exists in your mind of a black person. Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay. You're in New York, you're in college. And so where, where does the, okay, we're getting to a bubbling point here in terms of my sexuality. Where is the, how'd you say, like, where's kind of like the do or die moment. Where's the, you know, okay, this is it. This is who I am. Fuck it. Where, where's the fuck it moment. Man, it, it was a long journey for me. Like, I remember, like, the end of my senior year, like, trying to come out to, like, a really close friend in a practice room. And, you know, I was about to, and he, like, stops me and he goes, oh, God, are you about to come out to me? He goes, if you are, then don't. Don't be gay, Brian Carter. <laughs> That's What? what? He, yeah. And he's, like, shut me down right there. And I think that kind of, like, pushed me even further back into my own repression <laughs> holy shit yeah you know yeah and it, it took a long time you know there's a few different people who i think about michael Muenzo being one of them i feel like things changed in new york city for our generation when michael Muenzo moved to town who's a wonderful musician a wonderful band leader but he at the time was he basically started and curated the late night sessions that happened at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola at Jazz Lincoln Center. And it was kind of like this first time that, you know, a club was kind of giving free reign, like complete free reign to this young generation of musicians in New York City, like these, you know, 21, 22-year-olds. We were allowed to come in and, like, play an entire week of music and put together sets and learn how to band lead and 
you know, it was really important. But beyond that, Michael was, was gay and Michael, you know, I feel like he's somewhat of a controversial figure <laughs> in the music, but you know, we love him for it. He was always encouraging everyone to be their most free self. At least that was what I got for him from him. And I, I feel like that was a big push sometimes in maybe not the most healthy way. Uh, there's, there's a video on my YouTube and if you want more insight into that, you can go watch that, but I'll have to take a look at that. I think that, uh, yeah, that, that really helped me. And, and you know, the, the defining moment was kind of like, I was watching all these coming out videos on YouTube and, you know, I, I didn't really feel accepted by, what I thought gay culture was like, I was like, I don't feel like I fit in here any more so than I, I fit in like over here with just like the boys talking about like all these girls, they want to go, you know, it's like, I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. And I was watching this YouTuber named Mark E. Miller, who was from the Midwest. And, you know, he, he said something really interesting. He said like when he first came out, like he felt the need to show everyone how, proud and how gay he was and everything had to be yes queen and he had to go like challenge people all the time and he felt this need to be outwardly uh, proud of who he was and it, it took him a couple of years to realize that like, being gay was maybe the least interesting thing about him and it's not what he even really wanted to be known for like yeah it's a huge part of his identity but it's the least you know it's the least interesting thing about him and that for me was like this defining moment of like i can do this and I went on tour that, that summer in Europe. I was with my friend Emmett for most of it, Emmett Cohen, and I was not nice that tour. <laughs> okay. I was like in the, the biggest of internal struggles and battles, but that was kind of like that summer in Europe was like a defining summer for me and, and learning more about myself and learning how to love the parts of myself I didn't want anyone to know about and I didn't want anyone else to, to love. And yeah, that's kind of what had happened. I, so one thing you said that just resonated with me was the whole not fitting into traditional queer culture thing, particularly traditional gay male culture. Cause I think I, I had a very similar experience where like my shit was so pent up when I finally met other gay people, I was like, okay, well, this is what you need to do to be gay. And yeah. I fell into the, like the clubbing and kind of all that stuff. And then a couple of years later, like I, I stopped for a second. I was like, same me. Like it, it took me a while to get to a point where I was like, oh, there's more than one way to to be a, you know, to be a queer man. And once that happened, I was like, oh, this shit all kind of makes sense now. Uh, and, and it made me much. Maybe not as as externally proud, but a lot more internally proud. Because it was like, I'm not trying to be somebody else just to kind of fit. I'm not trying to be somebody else to fit into another group again, because I think that's what you feel. I live in New York. You're going to get noise. <laughs> you know the deal. Because I feel like that happens when you are, you know, trying to quote unquote act straight. And when you are trying to quote unquote act straight, if that's not your, or sorry, when you are trying to quote unquote act gay, if the stereotypical performative kind of representation of it is not something that you, that comes naturally to you. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I saw this 
I don't even remember who, you know, who, who posted it, but I saw this wonderful thing on, on Instagram that was like, you know, as queer people, we spend years learning how to like undo all of the fake things that we, you know, that we imposed upon ourselves during our, during our youth and during our teenage years, like all of these toxic fake, fake things that we attributed to ourselves. We spend years trying to like separate through everything and see what's real and and what's not, you know? And I feel like that's something that I'm just going to have to deal with my entire adult life in, in terms of, you know, living in a world and growing up in a time where, frankly, I wasn't allowed to be myself, you know? Right. I, I try to explain to people who, I mean, who aren't even really that much younger than me, you know, they're, you know, Barack Obama was inaugurated during my freshman year of, of college. And even during that time, like, he was still like, gay marriage, no. Right. It, it's weird to try to explain to people who are, like, 20 right now, it's like, you have to understand, you were, like, a little kid. Like, you have no concept of this. But during my freshman year of high school, like, George Bush literally ran for president on a platform of keeping marriage between a man and, man a, and a woman. Right. Literally ran on a platform of homophobia. <laughs> like, like, if gay people get the right to do this, then our entire country is going to fall apart. Therefore, you need to make me president. Like, instilling that sort of fear. I, I remember even in high school, like, you know, there was basically one out gay kid uh, in my entire high school. And they wouldn't let him or my other friend go to prom with someone of the same sex. Right. You had a rule that you weren't allowed to do it. And it was like applauded in the community. People were like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. You know, it's just, it's such a stark and different change than like, you know, even what's, what was happening 10 years later, especially what's happening now. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, go back 10, 15 years before you and that difference I think is even more stark, you know, because, if you were a gay man, you know, or a bisexual man, the immediate association was made to AIDS. Hmm. And, you know, you, you just had, uh, you know, an internal and external stigma that if you sort of lived an honest life, you either were going to get into a monogamous relationship really, really quickly, or you're going to die. Right. So there's, you know, it's, you know, people don't, I think, appreciate progress as much as they should, because sometimes progress is slow. And, you know, a lot of times it's too slow, but I mean, incremental progress is way better than no progress at all. No, for sure. I mean, I, I have no real concept of the AIDS crisis. Right, I right. I wasn't alive for it. Right. I guess I was, I was two years old, you know, 1992. You know, yeah. And but like, I missed kind of these horrible scenes of like, people literally literally dropping dead in the middle of the streets of new york city people losing their entire like friend groups you know just an insane time so i guess the next question is when 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 did you have that conversation with mom and dad i was like oh is this five years ago five years ago now at christmas <laughs> See, that, that's very, like, that sounds almost like TV movie. Like, okay, we're, I'm going to come home for Christmas and we're going to sit down and have this conversation. Right. I mean, it's, you know, 
I only come home like to well, my parents relocated to North Carolina. They uh, retired and they live there now. I only come home a few a couple times a year, but yeah, it seems like I was pretty much out to all of my friends by this point. And so, what was what was the reaction amongst your friend group? Obviously, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah. We're glad you're finally there. <laughs> so crazy how often that that happens. Like you have this realization and you talk to like the people that are close to you and they're like, okay. And like, what are you telling us that we didn't already know? We were waiting for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, what's funny. Like it was, well, actually I don't really want to say that on the podcast, but <laughs> sure. yeah, they, most people were just completely like, yeah, obviously, like, especially my my friends in New York who are musicians, because I feel like they're the most in tune, so to speak, uh, you know. Yeah, they're, they're the most aware of just the ability of, like, reading people and, and, and kind of, like, looking into things like that. You know, but even my friends back home were, were like, yeah, that's cool. Man. Yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's nice to, I think when you come out to people, and like you're i don't know about you were you expecting like the worst or were you just expecting things to be worse than they ended up being from whom just in general i mean i thought that a couple of my friends would be weird and a couple of them were weird but everyone mostly everyone was just like whatever i was scared for my parents like i came out to my sister before i came out to my mom and dad and my sister was like don't tell dad (laughs) She's like, I, if you tell dad, he's going to have a heart attack. Like, don't like literally, she literally thought that he was going to like kill her and die. She was like, please don't tell dad. Wow. Worried about his health. Like if you do this, and I was like, Oh God, you know, that's some shit to have on your, your shoulders. I, I know, you know, God bless her. I think she was just worried about our father. Damn. Yeah. And then I did. And, I mean, my parents were fine. Actually, my mom said, I know. And I was like, huh? <laughs> my dad and my mom's like completely calm and collected. My dad's like sobbing, like, I didn't know. <laughs> you know? And no, I'm, I'm very proud of um, for, you know, the work that they've put in and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of them. I, I know it's not easy <laughs> for any black parent born in the 1950s and 60s to open up the way that they have. So I'm proud of my parents for the work that they've, they've done, you know, I always tell, I have tons of, especially young musicians, you know, who ask me about coming out and how to do so. And, you know, some of them are really disappointed by their parents' reactions. And I'm like, you know, you've had however many years to kind of process and deal with this. Like you have to kind of allow your parents, I mean, they still love you, which is, you know, a lot of kids don't even have that, you know, you have to allow them some, some time to kind of cope. And I remember saying to my mom, like, I'm going to give you my mom and dad, I'm going to give you this time to mourn like the, the death of whatever image you have of me and what you think my life should be or thought, you know, and when you're ready, like when you're, when you've processed that, then there's books and there's movies and there's things that I, I want to share with you. 
to help you in like this education and this this new journey. And they were they were really cool with it. So that is incredibly mature. Yeah, I mean, by the time I was like a a grown ass man, (laughs) still that is incredibly mature. I mean, I I watched a lot of people who know me know that I'm very much like a solo processor and like any sort of undertaking. Like I I research and I write my own book of like, (laughs) I'm very much like that kind of analytical processor for better or for worse. But I, yeah, I I think that if I had done that when I was 16, then it would have been a much different story. Yeah. I don't know if I would have any relationship with my parents now. Not that they would have disowned me, but I, I think that, what probably would have happened would have been so detrimental and so so damaging to my my own development that I would probably not be in a very good place. So understood. So part of what you are doing now is really kind of mentorship. I think you know being kind of an out person in a genre of music or in an area. I mean, it doesn't even have to be music. It could be any anything where there are not a lot of examples. So, you know, I mean, is that something that you like take on willingly or is it something that, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, well, I accept that this is what I have to be if I'm going to be out. Like, how- I mean, I think any, any kid who messages me, like I'm going to give them the time and I'm going to try to give them the effort. I mean, I always try to leave with like, I'm not, a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. Like you have to take everything I say with, with that in mind and with a grain of salt, when you're dealing with 14, 15 year olds, it's like, that's, that's difficult in and of itself because it's just like to them, you're, you're a grown up. You know, I, I, the whole, you know, I, I put on this concert called jazz at pride, you know, which was like a, it was coinciding with stonewall 50. And I just, I wanted there to be, some example of, you know, musicians who were quote unquote successful, who were out and proud of who they were, because I didn't, I didn't really have that. I didn't really know that. Even musicians who I later learned were were queer or members of the LGBTQ community. Even still, like I, I didn't know any men of color who who were. Yeah, I'm literally trying to think of a jazz musician other than Dave Koz, who is openly queer yeah i mean you know fred hirsch is right queer and you know, some other people who i i don't even know how open they are and i don't really you know want to discuss i them. want to blow them up yeah i hear you you know and that for me was was a big problem there was no one who looked like me you know who was like this is how i love and you know within our generation there's people like you know Michael Munzo and, and Alfonso Horn and Julio Satasha and Michael Mayo and all these beautiful, incredible artists, you know, who are like, I'm, I'm black and I'm queer and I'm an amazing artist and um, you can be all of those things and they can exist and you can be happy. And Brandon, Brandon Lee, you know, Brandon was, we always say Brandon was out here before any of us, you know, and I, I'm sure that had to be really difficult and really tough for him. He's, he's inspiring, you know, because he was, 
he was out and I can't think of anyone else in his generation who, who was at that time. So yeah, yeah. somebody, somebody's gotta be the trailblazer. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do now. And it's, you know, it's not always pretty and <laughs> people saying not nice things about you I've gotten death threats. You know. Really? Yeah. Especially in the last couple of months, it's not been the best with this climate that we're in. Um, well, yes, of course. But yeah, you know, it's, I, I guess it's, it's to be expected. It's fine. We're all here. <laughs> we're all here doing the best we can. No, one some of us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> showed up at my place and you know shot me like he said he was right Um, that's insane yeah we have we have people who you know i i look up to and and people who i think of as like colleagues and peers who are you know posting horrible things on facebook and writing long statuses about like how you know being being gay is really just who have experienced sexual trauma in their lives. And if they pray, they can, God will take it away. They'll take away the trauma and they won't be gay anymore. And just like all sorts of really homophobic ignorance. And all I can do is try to combat that with science and and, and know that some people just aren't going to be willing to, to accept science and and facts and medicine. But you know, the the whole point is, is saying it so that the, the, 15 year old version of myself who reads that from someone that they look up to isn't so distraught and isn't so broken when they read it when they see like oh well brian carter is here at least he's on my side so amen to that how have the last few years affected your view of religion in light of your upbringing (sighs) that's a that's a tough one you know i it's like i said earlier I think that religion does a lot of wonderful things. I think that it does a lot of damage. You know, organized religion, I, I have a really tough time hopping on board with, with organized religion in general. Now, even places with the best of intentions, it's like, it's, it's so hard to control the ideology of like a hive mind, you know? Yeah there's always going to be people pushing their own agenda. And when you talk about religion and you talk about like beliefs that are held so closely and people are, are so easily offended when you, when you try to dissect or even really you know, discuss those views, it, it can be polarizing to a point where it does more harm than good. So, you know, even when you talk about like Hillsong, New York and, you know, Carl, Carl Lentz, the pastor there will like come and march with black lives matter. And, you know, he says anyone's welcome in his church. Not that I'm trying to attack Hillsong right now in this podcast. Right. Anyone's welcome in his, in his church. It's like you don't allow like queer worship leaders in your in your church. Like, are they not? So something. It, it's clearly something that you think that they should be ashamed of. Um, it's like your your home tr- your boss is busy trying to convince people not to vote for not to vote yes for gay marriage in Australia. Like Brian Houston is, is there saying that like being gay is a sin and being gay is wrong. And you know, his not to put him on blast, but like his father, if you don't know, he went to jail for you know, molesting a bunch of young boys in the church. 
and he Brian Houston has in the past kind of like blamed that on like the fact that his dad was gay and never got help which is like really messed up yes that's insane <laughs> really messed up hmm. and so yeah I I don't know if I can hop on board with with any of these churches right now you know until I see like a, a much better way and I know there are churches out there that that are doing better and and they do try to lead with love and I think it's just a really hard thing to do when, when you have people in your congregation who have a very clear idea of what church should be and who should be allowed to, to be there. And if they are there, the way that they need to live. And I just, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So flipping it back to music, I actually one question that uh, I thought of right at the beginning of us talking that I got to ask, you're a black drummer. How often or how quickly in conversation with the stranger does Questlove come up? A fair amount. <laughs> now, it's, now it's more about like a whiplash. Like that's, but everyone, of course, everyone knows Questlove. Everyone's like, yeah, Questlove, the Afro. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you know? it's like, I feel like anybody who sees a black guy playing the drums is immediately going to be like, black guy, drums, poop. And then a mirror just pops up in like a, a cloud of smoke in, in, in their head. Exactly. You know, and I'm, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the cat. <laughs> you know. yes. How are you dealing with the times that we're in right now and not being able to like do, you know, big gigs or anything, indoor gigs or anything like that? I mean, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. I mean, literally the, the last gig that I had, like the last open gig people could come to, you know, a benefit. And Nick Cordero, the Broadway singer who just passed away, right? Um, he was like on the gig, you know. So that wow, an indication of how serious you know it is. Like they so said, like a week later, he was in a coma. Holy and, shit! And literally, just you know, he's on the cover of People magazine, and I'm like, wow, I played his last show. You know, it's it's serious. It's it's difficult. I think I had like a hundred gigs canceled within the first like two weeks. tours, educational residencies. Yeah. It's, it's been rough, but you know, I think a part of being a musician is knowing how to adapt. So I'm doing what I can from home in terms of production and writing and arranging and orchestration and flexing some of those other muscles. So <laughs> it, I'm, I'm betting it helps to be, what's the word I'm looking for here? You know, to be kind of a Jack of all trades or have more than one, more than one feather in your cap, whatever the the cliche is. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what it is. It's like, hey, who needs string arrangements? I can do that. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, I think in your case, it probably also helps to be able to play multiple instruments. Yeah. I mean, I don't consider myself a great multi-instrumentalist. There are people who, who, are, who are that. But yeah, I definitely can do more than one thing, you know. So I, I'm trying to leverage, leverage those other gifts that I have and those other skills to stay alive during this horrible, horrible moment in time. So, Indeed. How do you, because you seem so like, you seem very centered. So in light of everything that we've talked about for the last hour, like how do you keep your equilibrium? Like what do you do to keep your, you know, to keep your shit together? I'm glad you think I'm censored. I think a lot of people don't think I'm censored. Really? <laughs> I, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm careful in the way that, in the way that I call people out, 
Like, I don't, I don't, and I think this is something that's, that's happened as I've gotten older too. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm presenting everything with the maximum amount of like clarity. And, and honestly, I don't want people to say that, you know, I was talking shit about them and it, it, it was coming out of nowhere. Like if I'm calling you out, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to have the receipts as the kids say. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but no, you know, I, you know, I, I released a song about a couple of months ago now called Dear Blue that you know, dealt with the just literally just police violence. You know, I was assaulted by a police officer in June, you know, after leaving a protest. You know, he saw my sign and, you know, I, there were words exchanged, but not any sort of, you know, negative. Physical. Okay. Was, you know, he was with his his cop friends and I started to cross the street. You know, I just left the grocery store and instead I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, why am I crossing the street to avoid these police officers? I'm just going to keep walking straight. If you remember, the curfew was eight o'clock at this time. I think it was like 7.58 or something, you know? So like I'm walking, there's still tons of people out on the street, cars driving by, whatever. And, you know, the cops are like sneering and saying stuff under their breath. And I just turned around and I was like, hey, guys, all we're asking for is to make it home to our families. I know you want to make it home to yours. <laughs> that's that's all we want. Anyway, have a great night. And like, that was it. And I started walking away. And like, as I'm walking away, I feel like a push from behind and like, my groceries are like rolling down the street. I went right on my knee and like their kids, you know, everyone, I mean, people were just like, Oh my God, you know, but they kind of didn't want to get involved. And there was like a group of kids and like, they started like walking, you know, for maybe just to help me up. And I was kind of like, don't you come over here. If you come over here, they're going to kick your ass. Like, right. Stay back. But yeah, just like that. And the, you know, the cops are screaming like, go on curfew, you know, and I'm trying to just like, pick up my stuff and get out of there so I don't get arrested because at this point, you know, in time, my friends were being detained and, and basically just like disappeared. Like no one knows where they yeah. are. There's no record. There's no arrest record. People are just literally being disappeared at this point. I'm just like, I need to get out of here. And this is a bad situation. And it, and it led me to write the song, Dear Blue. And it's a, a letter from a, a kid who is murdered at a tra- traffic stop by a police officer in this world where when a cop kills an unarmed person, they have to receive a letter from this kid. And this kid is explaining all the things that this cop stole from him. And he's saying like, I want you when you go to bed at night to think about my mother and think about my father and think about what you've put them through and think about like this, this really bright and wonderful future that you stole from me. That's that's deep. I wonder if I wonder how many of those people actually do take a second and are just like, what are the consequences of what I've just done? You know, well, I I think. (laughs) See, here's one of those unpopular things I'm going to say. I think that. So many of the cops in America, they have this hero complex that's instilled in them at the Academy, like at the very beginning, or, you know, it's even in our culture, like it just exists that cops are heroes and they go after bad guys and 
we have all these action movies where you know the cops are breaking all the rules but it's because the the bad guy is super bad so it's okay to assault people and you know it's okay to tie the bad guy up and you know the chief the the chief takes your badge and your gun but you still grab a gun and you go out there anyway and you do whatever you want because you're the cop and you're the good guy and you have to get the bad guy and it's a brotherhood it's a fraternal brotherhood and the boys in blue and it's like all this nonsense and all this propaganda these are people these are people killing other people you know there there rarely is a stark right and and wrong you know there really is a stark good and evil there's it's not a cartoon you know so a kid walking home with a, a bag of skittles is not like this evil deviant being you know it's no i'm with you there i i do think that there is this somewhere along the line there is this i don't want to say brainwashing but there's this conditioning that you know particularly when it comes to poorer neighborhoods which usually have black and brown people in them that they're coming in to restore order that everybody's every bit everybody's a criminal and they're in there to to be the good guys and to save the day. And, you know, it's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more nuance in that. You know, I grew up in the hood and sure, you know, they're drug dealers, they're thugs in the hood, but there are also lots of people who are working jobs, you know, to provide for their family and just, you know, their aim, like you said earlier, is to get home at the end of the day, the same way the cops aim is to get home at the end of the day. Right just to get from point A in the morning to point B at night so they can get to point A again the next morning. Like, and that's it. And that's the overwhelming majority. And I think somewhere along the line, the, the, the narrative has gotten so like messed up that these folks who don't live in this neighborhood have no ties to these neighborhoods, don't have friends or family members or anything, don't know anything about, these neighborhoods or these communities other than what they're told at their precinct and at the academy come in with this hero complex, this God complex. And they're like, our job is to, you know, be the warden and just, you know, lord over everybody without knowing what these people's stories are and what they do. And it it, it makes no sense or makes no subjective sense or objective sense, I should say. It just, yeah, but people just don't realize that. I mean, I said it at the beginning of quarantine, you know, when Mayor de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio was first kind of beginning to have the conversation of if we should be able to to go into like this mandatory lockdown, if we should be able to to ticket people or detain people who aren't wearing masks and aren't wearing gloves. And I remember I had friends who were like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I said point blank. I was like, if you will allow the police to arrest whomever they think aren't being safe it is going to disproportionately affect minorities in minority neighborhoods. They are going to beat the shit out of black people. Right. Right. <laughs> for no reason for just for existing. And everyone was like, no, no, you know, and you know, weeks later we have the videos in Brooklyn of just cops being out of control while white people lay on each other at parks. And right. Yeah. I think that is, the most accurate look of 2020 (laughs) 
in, in terms of the relationship between the police, the African-American community and the police and the white community. Yep, you're absolutely right. So what's, I guess, in, what's in the immediate future for Brian? Like what, and I realize we're at a time when you can't really like plan shit, but is there anything in particular coming up that, that you're really proud of or that you've got, you know, cooking uh, on the stove or anything that you've got going on? Yeah, we have new music hopefully coming out in the fall. <laughs> Everything's kind of a little topsy-turvy right now, but hopefully there'll be uh, new music being released. Yeah, new, new videos, new content for everyone to enjoy, enjoy at home. <laughs> nice, nice. And I guess my last question, I, so I have a rotating assortment of last questions, but I think this is, this is actually a pretty good one for you. If you could go back to the, what are we in 2020 to like 2005 and tell teenage, like early high school, Brian, one thing, what would it be? Wow. Maybe nothing. I don't, I don't know. Really? That is an answer I've never gotten before. I'm curious why, why you say nothing. Because I think it's all a journey and it's all an experience. I mean, I don't know if at 15 I would even listen to myself. I've gotten that answer before. <laughs> but it's, you know, my, my journey and my experience, when people ask me if I wish I had done things differently here or there, it's kind of like, it, it's mute, you know? It's like, this is where I am. And yeah, it's it's all part of living in life and like learning lessons and all the good and the, and the bad and, and, and the hardship and the success and the failure, that's all a part of life and that's all a part of learning. And ultimately that's what makes living. So I know I, I think it'd be interesting to like go and, and, and watch myself at 15 and be like, wow, you don't know anything, <laughs> but also like something that I've had to learn, you know, teaching is like, I used to get really frustrated with kids. It's like, you can't, you can't tell a 15 year old if they don't know what they don't know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, you're, you're stupid. <laughs> and you're, it's just, just because you don't know, you have to live and you have to figure that out on your own. Right. Yeah. First of all, let me just state for the record how much I respect and appreciate Brian for all of the things he does and for being so honest and open in conversation and for taking the time out of his schedule to sit and talk. Um, you can find Brian online at BrianCarterMusic.com. Go to the site. Not only will you be able to check out his music, uh, including his latest single, Dear Blue, which you should all stream and download, but you can link out to his Twitter, his Facebook, his Instagram, his YouTube. He's got some great videos. And um, once again, just big shout out to Brian Carter. I wish him much success in his future endeavors. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Detoxicity is pretty much everywhere. You can download it on just about every podcast platform you can think of. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, iHeart, Stitcher, TuneIn, everywhere. And uh, make sure you leave a comment or a rating so we can move up in the rankings and become even more popular. Um, I appreciate the fact that you take the time to listen. Please spread the word. Uh, I'm on social media, facebook.com slash detoxpod, on Twitter at tismikejoseph, uh, on Instagram at itsmikejoseph, and you can email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. September is National Suicide Prevention Month. 
particularly in these days uh, with COVID and isolation and the state of the country and the world, it's important to remind people that they are not alone. Uh, one of the many great suicide prevention charities that exists is the American Federation for Suicide Pre Prevention. You can find them at AFSP.org. That is A is in Apple, F is in Frank, S is in Sam, P is in Peter, dot org. And uh, if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal ideation, make sure you call 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to 741741. Once again, that is 1-800-273-8255 or text the word TALK to 741741. My name is Mike Joseph. I hope that you stay safe and healthy. I will catch you next week. Peace.